Good morning, church family. What a joy it is to be in the house of the Lord this morning. You know, I'm so very, very proud of Memorial Baptist Church. I'm thankful that you all are, are here, but I'm thankful for the tremendous blessing that you all are to this community, but also to this pastor. I want to thank you for all who responded to the help for uh, those who've been affected by Hurricane Harvey and uh, what we did this past week. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being the hands and feet of Christ. I, I, I praise that in you. You know, our job is not yet over, though. Um, that recovery project is going to be a long and drawn-out process. And, um, you know, the cleanup and, and uh, rebuilding efforts along the Texas coast are, are going to be uh, very costly. And, um, you know, as a church... Uh, we pray and we give and we go, and we're going to be funneling our efforts through the Texas Baptist men uh, as they work in effective ministry there. Uh, they've got boots on the ground. I want to say we've got boots on the ground. And uh, Jim and Monica have been down there in Angleton feeding people all week, and uh, I know they would covet your prayers and, and the strength, to, the stamina, endurance uh, to continue what they're doing. I know it's a, a lot, a lot of work. And the, the need is so great. But continue to pray with me for uh, those who are suffering and afflicted and, and are, are having all of these issues that go along with that. And uh, I want to encourage you also to give generously, not only to Texas Baptist men, but also through our Mary Hill Davis offering. And there will be an announcement later about that. But uh, this is a, a month where we um, collect an offering uh, over and above our tithes uh, for uh, Texas State Missions. So uh, I hope that you will be a part of that. Y'all ready for the truth? Ready to hear some truth? You know, um, we're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter uh, 4 today. And, um, you know, Sir Walter Scott, he tells about how as a young boy, um, he used to, uh, in Scotland, he would stand on his porch in the evening. And that was back in the day when they had the, the lamplighter, the, the gas lamplighter that would go through the town. And he would light all these lamps and he would, he would watch him do that and he would follow him just from his porch. He could see these, these circles of light, if you will. And, and, and he would, uh, it says that he would go uh, run in and tell his mom when, when the lamplighter got close. He'd say, Mom, Mom, come and see the man who's punching holes in the darkness. You know, I like that. I like the way that sounds. I mean, I think it's an excellent definition of the mission of God's people in every age. To punch holes in the moral, the spiritual, the social, the political darkness of the world and to allow the light of the gospel to bring direction and healing. Oh, how we need that. How we need that kind of, 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 of mission there. You know, as we think about punching holes in the darkness, let me ask you a question. Who needs the gospel the most? Who needs the gospel the most? Those who are well or those who are sick? Those who are righteous or those who are sinners? Those who have the most light... Or those who are living in darkness. Because sometimes I think that we feel like we are the ones who need to hear the gospel the most. 
But if we've given our hearts and lives to Jesus Christ, then we are saved for all eternity. Who needs the gospel the most? I've chosen this particular series, uh, preaching series, on select passages in the gospel of Matthew. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to be in the gospel of Matthew because they're specifically related to our discipleship. Following Jesus. Learning from Him. And my desire is not that you would learn uh, what we, that we ought to live as Jesus' disciple or that it would be good if we lived as Jesus' disciple or that we are ash- you should be ashamed if you're not living as His disciple. That's not my intent. You see, my intent is that we would all actually live as Jesus' disciples. That's my desire. You know, Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Controversy. He writes about the need for a curriculum for Christ-likeness. A curriculum for Christ-likeness. And in speaking about this need, he uses the imagery of learning to ride a bicycle. And he said, you know, if you're teaching adults or children how to ride a bicycle or to learn how to swim, for instance, (laughs) he says... They actually ride bikes and they actually swim. You don't teach them that they ought to ride bikes or that it would be good to ride bikes or that they should be ashamed if they don't ride a bike. But unfortunately, it seems to be the method in many churches and Bible study groups, that seems to be the method when it comes to instruction on discipleship. We want to tell you you ought to do it. We want to tell you that it's good to do it. And we want to tell you that it's a shame. You should be ashamed if you're not being discipled. If you're not living as a disciple. But you see, as the bride of Christ, we must focus on what Jesus commanded us to do. He said, as you go, make disciples of all the nations. Our main emphasis as believers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, is to go make other disciples. I would ask you to take a quick inventory. How's that working for you? See, the early church, they recognized the usefulness of the Gospel of Matthew as a basic instruction book on what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ, a follower of His. And one of the major purposes of the Gospel of Matthew is instruction for believers in discipleship. See, I believe that the church today needs to give attention to discipleship. Oh, we are educated well beyond our level of obedience. What we need is obedience to the commands of Christ. You know, the word Christian... It's thrown around out there so loosely these days. And it's applied to so many entities and actions. And some of them have questionable connections to Jesus, if at all. Well, we're a Christian organization. Well, it's a Christian store. It's a Christian t-shirt. Listen, Jesus didn't die for a t-shirt. He died to save the souls of men and women. See, being a Christian is not merely about being saved. 
Yes, evangelism is part of it. But salvation is indeed very important. But it's often talked about in such a superficial and shallow manner. Misguided. I mean, being a Christian is about being a disciple of Jesus. Of following Him. It's not just ascending to that. It's not just mental ascent and saying, yes, I want to make Him my Lord. It's actually following Him. See, when we are disciples of Jesus, we can trust that he will take care of our salvation. Because on that day, that same power that raised him from the dead will raise each one of us. See, up to this point in Matthew's gospel, it's been all prologue, if you will, introduction I mean, the first three chapters of of Matthew revealed Jesus as the Messiah who fulfilled the Scriptures. And it foreshadows Jesus' acceptance by the Gentiles and the rejection of Jesus by his own people, by his own hometown. And it introduces Jesus' mission through John the Baptist's ministry and the baptism of Jesus. I want to read in chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. If you have your Bible and want to follow along, that would be great. If not, listen very closely. It says, Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali... By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, in our life, sometimes things seem good and sometimes things seem bad. It's a matter of our perspective. But what we see here is after Jesus' baptism and after his temptation experience, he received some terrible news. I mean, that's what it says there in verse 12. His cousin, his fellow minister, his prophetic forerunner had been put into prison where he would stay until his execution. Jesus received this news that John, John the Baptist, was now in custody. He's being held. You know, over in Luke 4, we also read and it tells of Jesus' ministry in his hometown. Do you remember this? Do you remember when Jesus was in Nazareth, he went to the synagogue and he, he got up and he began to preach and, and, he, and he, he spoke about the, the, um, the passage in Isaiah and, and then uh, the people were enraged and they got angry and they took him out of, of the synagogue, they took him out of town, out to the, the brow of the hill, if you will, and they were going to throw him off to his death. But it says that he passed through them and got away. His own hometown rejected him. They didn't want to hear the truth. They didn't want to hear what Jesus was saying. 
So Jesus left and he went into this, he went northeast to this town of Capernaum. You know, the works of Jesus had not yet been known in outlying areas, so he had a unique opportunity. Capernaum was located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it was a center of Galilean political life, and it had a very thriving fishing industry. So you must know, this was, this was a place that was, there was lots of industry, there was, there was a lot of things were decided at Capernaum. You know, in Matthew, uh, in verse 13 here, uh, Matthew's description of Capernaum was by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And it's referencing a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. See, that prophecy was originally spoken in reference to a deliverer for Israel. A deliverer for Israel away from Assyrian oppression. So Isaiah was writing that, talking about another time. Matthew applied Isaiah's word to Jesus' messianic work of deliverance, bringing complete fulfillment to Isaiah's expectation. In verse 15 it says, The the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea. See, this way of the sea was a Roman road that went from um, Damascus all the way to Caesarea on the western coast of the Mediterranean. And beyond the Jordan was the Decapolis, the ten cities where Jesus' ministry also extended to. And it calls this place where Jesus was now ministering as the, the Galilee of the Gentiles. And really the whole North uh, Sea of Galilee region was a place where lots of Gentiles, lots of concentration of Gentiles were located. They had a large population of Gentiles there. But now watch this. In verse 16, what does it say? It says, The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. (laughs) The word that Matthew used here for people. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. The word here that he used for people is a word specifically used for Jews. Did you get it? The people who are living in darkness is understood as the Jewish people. That's what Matthew is saying. We think it's for the Gentiles, but he's talking about being in the land of the Gentiles. But he says the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. We're talking about Jesus here. See, they were frustrated. They were despairing. They were dwelling. The Jews were dwelling among pagans who had overrun their country. And they they mocked God and they persecuted their faith and lifestyle. And they were given a great hope. A great light. Which is the fulfillment of God's promises in the Messiah. In Jesus He was fulfilling God's promises. And Jesus began teaching and and his healing ministry by repeating what John preached. Look at verse 17. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was the same message John the Baptist was preaching. This is the same message that has John the Baptist in prison. 
And Jesus comes preaching. It says there, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, to repent does not mean feeling sorry or just changing your mind. The word repent means to turn 180 degrees and go in the other direction. To repent means if you're walking this way, to repent means you're going to turn and you're going to go this way instead. And Jesus is preaching that message. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, the prophets of old, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, they all begged for God's people. For God's people to repent by transforming their hearts and their behavior. And Jesus is saying, repent for the kingdom of hand. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God's sovereignty over all creation. Where people and nature exist in harmony and holiness. Because God is sovereign over all. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are really equivalent phrases. But the second one, the kingdom of heaven, reflects the Jewish tradition of avoiding the use of God's name so as not to violate the third commandment. Jesus uses this. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But that also anticipates Christ's authority after his resurrection. Notice that when Jesus began to preach, he immediately began to call others to the task. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. He says, Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Gary Harris says, Yeah. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Let me ask you, what kind of invitations make you drop everything and go? What kind of invitations make you drop everything and go? Does it matter who's asking? Are you an immediate responder? Or are you someone that likes to think it over? What motivates you to make a change in your plans? Because what we see here is we see the Master. We see the Lord calling them to follow Him. Peter and Andrew were fishermen. They weren't doing anything unique or necessarily spectacular. Jesus was walking by the sea. And the word that is used there for their nets, they they had their net, it suggests a net for casting on both sides of the boat. This wasn't a drag net that that they pulled behind the boat. It was a, a, a net that was used for casting to a specific target 
in a specific area. Now get this. This is exactly what Jesus is going to ask them to do. To follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The target wouldn't be fish, but it would be people. But you see, the sense of urgency, the sense of urgency is rooted in the nearness of the kingdom of heaven. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, by joining Jesus, these fishermen, their work would be to to fish for people. By calling them to repentance... So they too would be ready for the kingdom of heaven. I mean, what type of response does Jesus' challenge, follow me, what type of response does that demand? Not right now, Lord, I'm busy. I got my job. They just put me on days. I'm going to take care of stuff. I'm going to take care of my family. Not right now, Lord. My family's going through a crisis. And I need to take care of this first. Are you going to put the the, the Lord of all creation on hold for something temporary when he calls you? You see, Jesus chose to start his team with fishermen. And my question is why? Of all the people out there, why? I mean, they were busy. Oh, we are a society that prides ourselves on being busy. We tell people how busy we are. Well, I just can't make it today. I'm busy. I can't help you today because I'm busy. I can't go there because I'm busy. I've got other things I have to do. I'm busy. Folks, these fishermen were busy. They were doing something. They were either fishing or they were catching fish or they were preparing or they were mending their nets. But you know what? God uses busy people. I mean, you think about Saul. He called Saul to be king over Israel while he was tending to his father's donkeys. Or what about David who was tending to his father's flocks? Amos was was farming in Tekoa. Matthew was working in the tax collector's booth. Moses was tending his father-in-law's flock and Gideon was threshing wheat. All of these people were busy. And God called them. And there's a thousand more examples. They're busy and God calls them. But these fishermen were also courageous and industrious and patient people. I mean, as professional fishermen, they knew their work would be exhausting, time-consuming, and even messy at times. And for Jesus to call to fish for people is equally challenging. I mean, the new followers would see that they must fish in difficult circumstances. That interacting with other people's lives can sometimes be messy. Sometimes we are tired and we we just want to rest. But we can't. The harvest is in. It's time to make hay, if you will, while the sun is shining. You have to take the harvest when it comes. See, the Greek language has several expressions for the word following. But all of them imply a physical act. It wasn't just here. It was down here. 
To follow him means they had to walk behind him. They had to walk with him. They had to go with him physically. See, while teaching, walking while teaching was characteristic of the rabbis. They would, the, the philosophers of the day, they would walk and they would talk. And this enabled their students to absorb the instruction and to imitate their master's example. And, and so that they could pass it along to others as well. You need to understand something. What Jesus was calling them to, those fishermen, and what he calls us to, is constant companionship with Jesus. It's not as if you give your heart and life to Jesus one time and then you're done. To be a disciple of Jesus means that you're walking with him and following him every step of the way. Through this life. It's constant companionship with Jesus. I mean, Jesus had a most unique way of calling. He handpicked these disciples. And they followed him around in ministry. He equipped them to fulfill their calling to this new work. I mean, Jesus' method of discipleship is simply this. Invest yourself in the lives of a dozen people... Living relationally, authentically, and transparently. What an example. What an example. I mean, here's a game-changing twist to teaching others to evangelize. Instead of classes and courses, instead of methods and techniques, instead of reading books and going to seminars, why don't we just simply have somebody follow you around? That's what Jesus did. Follow me. I wonder what kind of disciples we would be making if people were following us. I'm not saying there's not a place for for reading and for learning and for uh, classes and seminars and that kind of thing. But I mean, think about this. Jesus said, hang around me and I will make you man fishers. I will make you fishers of men. See, for us today, Jesus calling for us to follow him extends to everyone, to all people. And the demands for discipleship are a lifelong commitment to obeying God's will. You are bought with a price. You are no longer your own. You've been paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He created you. He made you. But then he also paid for you. So you're doubly bought. You're doubly his. And he has a right to tell us what he wants us to do. He's the Lord. He's the master. We are the servants. We are the vessel. Don't forget that. Don't don't put your importance up there next to God. Because it's not. We belong to Him and we serve Him. I mean, he, he guides us, He equips us, and He provides for His followers as we live in a community together with one another. I mean, Jesus could have individually walked with each disciple and invested Himself in them, but He didn't. He called them to join a group. 
He called them to a community of faith where they could journey through life together. And I want you to know something. This is very important to Matthew. Because of all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew is the only one who mentions the church. He's calling us to join together, partnering in making disciples of all the nations. I love that. Now, you see this second pair of brothers here. You see Peter and Andrew, and then you see James and John. And they were most likely making repairs to their nets. The Gospel of Mark tells us that their boat was big enough to include hired workers. So it may be an indication of an extensive um, financially successful operation. But notice James and John. Notice their immediate response. They are recognizing. Matthew is recognizing true discipleship. Because unhesitatingly, they abandon the past. And they follow unconditionally. Peter and Andrew left their net. James and John left their boat. They left their father. And maybe their profitable lifestyle business. They left it all to do one simple thing, and that was to follow him. Understand this. Jesus' first call is to repentance. Each one of us must repent if we desire to see the kingdom of heaven. He is saying, repent. I mean, have you answered that call? Because if you haven't answered that call, that's the primary call, is to repent. That's what Jesus said. We must repent. Are your life, your mind, your heart daily being renewed? I'm not talking about when you acknowledge Christ as your Savior and Lord. I'm talking about today. Are you being renewed with Him? Is that relationship between you and Him good? I mean, is your repentance not just once for eternal salvation, but moment by moment interacting with Him? Cleansing you from sin? Secondly, Jesus calls us to discipleship. And it's a matter of costly obedience. We want to follow Jesus as long as it doesn't cost us something. We want to go and do what's convenient. We want to do what makes us comfortable. But that is precisely what Jesus is not calling us to. He's calling us away from comfort towards difficult discipleship, towards difficult obedience in Him. Because, folks, that's where the people are. That's where the fish are. That's where He wants us to go. I mean, with the exception of the Apostle John, most, if not all, of Jesus' closest friends were martyred. They were killed for following Jesus. I mean, to follow Jesus means leaving behind a personal preference, our agendas. Breaking from the past and on the most basic level, reshaping our priorities, 
Not out of obligation, but out of love for him. Because we love him. See, Jesus also expects his followers to call others to repentance and fellowship. It's not enough for the preacher to say we must repent. You need to say to those around you in your circle of influence as a disciple of Jesus Christ, they need to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. See, there's an urgency in the nearness. I mean, are you inviting others to experience this kind of relationship with him? Are you inviting others to to know Christ in a personal way? To be their all in all? To be their Savior? To be their Lord? I mean, Matthew specifically highlights that James and John not only left their fishing, but they also left their father to begin following Jesus. I wonder what Zebedee was thinking. Was he thinking about the loss to him? I don't think so. You see, Zebedee let both of his sons walk away from his plans for his boys. In other words, he let both of his sons walk away from the family business. Would you let your son or daughter go on the mission field? Wait a minute, preacher. That's my family. This was Zebedee's boys. He'd invested a lot in them. I mean, do you encourage it with your children, with your family? Do you talk about it with them? Do you pray about it with them? Recognize this sudden departure that we see here is a sign of radical discipleship. To follow Christ in that way. They came immediately. They came at all cost. They came without question. They came to follow their leader. They came without stipulation or reserve. And following Jesus means leaving some things behind. The Samaritan woman, she left her pitcher at the well and went into town. Matthew left his tax table. Blind Bartimaeus got up and left his cloak to follow Jesus. And I believe this should be our prayer. Lord, help me to be obedient. Help me to be faithful and unhesitatingly following you as long as I live. And Lord, let no Nets detain me. Would you bow with me for just a moment? You know, the question we have to ask ourselves is Am I following Jesus? In this moment, I just ask that you would examine your heart. Am I living in willful sin? Am I living in willful sin? Have have I repented of my sins and sought Jesus and his forgiveness and leadership in my life? Am I committed to spiritual growth and worship and prayer? 
Is the Holy Spirit free to work in and through me? Is my life an example of purity and integrity? Am I boldly speaking the truth of the gospel to those who need to hear it? See, I believe there are some real needs within our congregation this morning. If you're not saved, you can be. All you need to do is recognize Jesus as your Savior. Confess your sin in repentance and come to Him in faith. See, He came to seek the, seeking to save that which is lost, and that includes you and me. Maybe you need a touch from the great physician. Maybe you're dealing with adversity and pain and you're facing inner turmoil. Whatever the need right now in your life, I would come to Jesus with it. See, your eternity may, may, be on, may rest on this decision. And I would ask you to come while the Holy Spirit is pleading.